Well, happy Mother's Day. It's good to have you here. And we do want to focus on moms today. Hopefully, I don't know if you've ever been to one of those services. I, I became aware of this a few years ago on Mother's Day and Father's Day that, you know, you just come in and it's Mother's Day and everything's great and you're going to brunch and life is good until you get to church and then the pastor just beats up on you and you just walk out going, I'm a failure, I'm, I'm a miserable mother. And then Father's Day comes and you're not men at all. And you're going, oh, you know, wow, Father's Day, that's really great too. You're like, I'm not going to church next Father's Day or Mother's Day, all right? That is not my goal this morning. It's really not. I want to encourage you and challenge you as moms. And by the way, there's a lot of us here, obviously, this morning, we're not moms. And I, I believe these principles we're going to talk about this morning are really almost just as applicable, if not in more, more so in some cases, as they are to moms. According to a recent report, social networking has not only taken over our time, but it has actually changed the way in which we think about ourselves. In fact, the latest survey tells us that people are spending crazy amounts of time on on social networking sites like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and Pinterest. In fact, one poll that I read this week said that the average person spends more time on social media than with their pet. Think about that. I, guilty for me, I have no pet. <laughs> so any time spent on social media is more time than I spend with my pet. But some of you I know you really love your pet, and so if that survey is true, I mean, you're actually spending more time on social media than you are with your pets. Did you know that as of, and these statistics, this statistic is a couple years old, but as of just a couple years ago, every 24 hours, we upload more than 1.8 billion photos, and those are shared by Facebook users, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, whatever it is that, that you do. And I found this to be funny. Meanwhile, 90% of Americans polled think that other people are sharing too much information about themselves. Now think about that. We're uploading 1.8 billion photos, and yet 90% of us are convinced you're sharing too much. I'm not. You are, right? So we're guilty of the very thing we say we don't uh, like. The research, in fact, suggests that this overflow of sharing has led many to routinely compare themselves to their inflated number of online friends. Notice I said your inflated number of online friends. I saw a guy the other day, and he had 2,400 friends, and I know this guy, and I'm going, no way. There's no way that there's 2,400 people that like him. In fact, I'm thinking... I'm thinking, I thought I was one of the few people that did, and yet for whatever reason, 24 people have said, that's why it's an inflated number, right? You don't really have that many friends. But with every picture and every status update, it results for many of us in a new round of self-judgment. And so in the end, social media has become as socially destructive as a high school cafeteria. Some of you are living there right now as high school students a lot of us lived there, and we know what that means, that, that even the most popular kids really are not as happy and confident as they're letting on. And you know, today is Mother's Day, and I think without exception, that is true of so many moms as well. That as you look at what other moms do, what other moms post out there on Twitter and Facebook and everything, you have a tendency as well to compare yourself, Right? You go, look at that dinner that they had tonight. Now, let me just tell you, 
If you don't have anything better to do besides take a picture of your dinner, you need to get a life, right? But you know, a lot of people are doing that. They're making dinner and snapping a picture of it. You look at that picture and what do you do immediately? You go, man, we got Oscar Mayer wieners in the, in the refrigerator and I was planning on stirring up some craft, you know, mac and cheese and look what she's making. I mean, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. My kids are not eating nutritiously. I'm just, you know, Laura, look at that dessert. You know, we, we were going to have ice cream out of that big tub that you buy at Sam's. And she's got this dessert that just looks like it's to die for it. Look at where they went on vacation with their family. Look at what her husband, look at where he took her for their anniversary. (laughs) My husband barely got me a card. And here's what you'll see today. A lot of this will go on. Moms or daughters will upload these photos. Here's my mom. We're best friends. And you're going, Oh, I don't know if my daughter sees me as best. Look at them. They look so happy together. I bet they never fight. You just had a fight with your daughter. Okay, that's going to happen. Some of you are smiling because it's already happened this morning. You've gone on. You've seen the pictures, right? And then you're going to look at that other mom and you're going to go, she looks so young. Let me just tell you, maybe it's Botox, maybe it's surgery, maybe it's something else, but we're all getting older, Right? But you'll convince yourself, wow, she isn't aging at all. And you'll look in the mirror as you're putting your makeup on. You're going, what's happening to me? (laughs) Or you'll go, look what she did with her kids. Look what she does with her kids. I mean, her kids are the same age as mine. And look at what they do and how she's able to manage all of this. You'll compare yourself. And the truth is that what we see when we look at the public persona of most people is never reality. I hope you get that. I hope you understand that. And if you see that picture this afternoon, that mom or that daughter post, they go, we're best friends, you know, BFFs forever. You know, they have their moments. There are their moments when they yell at each other and they disagree and they hang up the phone in frustration. That's going on. And I've come to this conclusion. You've heard me say it if you've been here long enough many times. And that is this, that we are all messed up people. We really are. I don't care what you see on Facebook. I don't see what picture you see uploaded on Instagram today. We're all messed up people. Now, I've also come to realize that some of us are more messed up than others, right? Now, if we're just fair and honest, right? We try to keep it real here. There are some of you that right now you're really messed up. I don't say that, by the way, in a flippant way. You know your life is messed up, all right? But mine is too. You may be a little bit more messed up than I am right now. And to some degree, I take comfort in that, that you're a little more messed up than I am. There are some of you that are out there and you're doing pretty good right now. You're not as messed up as I am right now. But the truth is that we're all messed up. We all have our issues. And I know this, that there is a lot of pressure in our culture on being a mom. In fact, you know that I believe that church is one of the few places where you'll come into a service like this where we're pointing people to Jesus, where we will actually value motherhood for what God intended for it to be. And I want to echo what Jerry already said this morning, that if you're here and you're a mom, we appreciate you. You are undervalued in our culture for what you do with kids and what you do in homes. And, and, and this whole idea of a stay-at-home mom is minimized in our culture. And I want you to know that we appreciate that. We value that. I've oftentimes said that I think it's one of the biggest scams that goes on in homes like mine where I come home from 
work. And my wife says, thanks what you do to provide for us. And well, no problem. Happy to do it. And, you know, just glad I could bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan, do all that kind of stuff. Glad I could do that for you. And I look around at what she's dealt with, especially when our kids were little, and I go, what a scam, right? I mean, she's the one that's really working. She's the one that's really putting in the time, especially as for a guy that's in full-time ministry. I mean, I, 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 was, I was with people all day, most of which I like, and have, you know, loved to be involved in their life. I had a two-hour lunch, you know, counseling and hanging out with somebody that I really enjoyed. And then I got to prepare to do something that I really like to do. And she's home doing the hard stuff. So we appreciate that. I realize that motherhood is, is difficult. And, and you want to raise your kids the right way. And here's what's unfortunate, that there is no definitive book out there or handbook that's out there that, that gives you what to do in every, every particular, particular situation. Have you recognized that, mothers? That you just don't go, it's not as simple as a Google search and you just get the answer and you do it. Sometimes you figure out what the right answer is, but that's after you've done the wrong thing. It's difficult. And for most of us, we're our own biggest critics. We tend to focus on what we do wrong more than on what we do right. But what if the people that mattered most, what if we asked them what they thought? In fact, how do your children see you? For Mother's Day recently, one church did an experiment and they asked moms to describe themselves and then they compared that with what their own kids said about them. And it's amazing what you see when you look at things from a different perspective. Watch this. I'm a perfectionist, and so that's hard with kids. There's definitely days when I have my doubts about my abilities. I struggle with my temper. I struggle with like how I react with situations. I wish I knew how to, I guess, just calm myself before speaking to them. I wish I was better at taking time to sit down and just listen more to my child. I wish I was more confident in being a mom. I'm not the most patient person in the world. Patience. Patience is far and away probably the biggest struggle. I just want them to know just how much I love them. My mom is totally awesome. She's fun to snuggle with. Pretty, funny. She does cook a lot of food for me. She's just unique. That's why I love her so much. We go on dates together. Like, we go shopping. She loves me a lot. I have a lot of favorite things about my mom. We like to watch movies together and color and stuff. We go to church together, we volunteer together. She is like my heart, I guess you could say, because she's that close to me. My favorite thing is to jump on a trampoline with my mom. That's my most favorite thing to go up high. We like get ice cream or something. 
and like you go to the nail salon and have fun. <laughs> my mommy's my hero. She's pretty and beautiful. She is my hero. She just will care about me and just always love me forever. She's the best. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> I always seem to focus mostly on the negative, and I guess I can walk out of here and say that I'm doing something great and that my child is viewing me in totally different lenses as I view myself. So that's, that's inspiring. This is my calling. This is my job. This is what I love to do, and I will do it better and with love each and every day because those kids count on me, and they love me for what I'm doing. Well, perspective's everything, right? They probably feel a little bit different about you than you think that they do. You know, the Bible, we're going to talk about this. Jerry mentioned earlier, we're going to start this theology series here next week, and we're going to talk about the Bible in a couple of weeks. But you understand, at least most of you do, the Bible is the best-selling book of all times. And I got to thinking about it this week, that if, if a mom actually made it into the pages of Scripture, then her life is probably worth looking at. Would you agree with that? And one of the things that I appreciate most about the Bible is that God allows us to see reality. You see, Facebook rarely allows us to see reality, but God allows us to see reality in his word. We see people who make mistakes, and then they make things right. We see people that honor God with their lives in the midst of tragedy and disappointment, and then we see them satisfied as God sovereignly works his will in their lives. We see ordinary people who unknowingly have incredible impact and influence in others' lives because they faithfully exercise their calling. And what I want to do this morning, just, just very briefly, is I want to look at five moms in the Bible. And by the way, we could have looked at probably 20 moms. I did. But I narrowed it down to just five moms that I want to look, look at in Scripture. And I want to give one principle from their life that you can apply to your life as a mom for sure, but even the rest of us here today, I think these principles are just as applicable for us as well, all right? So you can turn in your Bible as I'm in these passages, but I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work quick through them. But the first one I'm gonna give you, you can mark her name down, is, is a lady by the name of Rahab. Rahab. We meet her in Joshua chapter two. Some of you immediately gasped and went, Rahab, right. I never thought I would hear a Mother's Day message on Rahab. Rahab, as we meet her in Joshua chapter 2, she's introduced to us as a harlot or as a prostitute. She would have been a very difficult mom to go to Target or the Hallmark store and buy a card for, right? I mean, what do you get for the mom who, that's her profession, right? She was a prostitute. Well, prostitution may be idealized in certain movies in our day and age, the truth is that it's a dreadful and a very demeaning way to go through life. And you'll remember if you've heard the story that Rahab was the one who helped the Jewish spies when they came in to scope out Jericho. She came to believe in God and as a result of her belief in Jehovah God, her life radically changed. Her son's name was Boaz, 
Her grandson was Obed. Her great-grandson was Jesse. Her great-great-grandson was David, one of the kings of Israel. And let's not forget her most famous direct descendant was the one that we've been singing about this morning. It was Jesus. (laughs) I love that. The people, and I'll say this in a few weeks when we're talking about the reliability of Scripture, but for people who would say, well, you can't really believe that book. I mean, it was just kind of put together. Nobody would write a book and say, hey, let's make the prostitute a direct descendant of Jesus. Yeah, that'll sell really well. That'll make a lot of sense, right? Nobody would do that. And I think what Rahab's life represents for us is that God uses us in spite of poor decisions, poor choices that we've made in the past. Do you ever feel like you've made wrong choices, moms, in your life, or you've not done something the right way, you've not had the right priorities, and as a result, you wonder about the potential negative effects on your kids? It's not really a question of if you will make mistakes, because we will. It's, it's really simply more of a question of will we learn from those mistakes? Here's what I know about the God that we've been singing about this morning. God is in the business of making beautiful things out of broken things. That's what God does. Rahab's life is a demonstration of that. That here is a woman that for all practical purposes, when when you look at what she did for a living just to survive was to sell her body to men that she didn't know. You would think, what is ever going to happen with that life? But God steps in and God makes a beautiful thing out of something that's very, very broken. And what Rahab's life demonstrates for us is that God changes people's lives. And sometimes it's the most least likely person whose life is transformed and changed. And as a result of that, God does something incredible. And if Rahab's life demonstrates nothing else, it demonstrates that all great moms make mistakes But great moms also learn from those mistakes and they see God use those mistakes in their lives. So if you're here this morning and you're a mom and you've made some poor decisions, you've made some poor mistakes, I don't know what that might be. Maybe you've not been faithful to your husband. Maybe you've said some words to your kids which you know have been hurtful. And, and it's not just when they were like three, four, five years old. Maybe you got, a, you got a high school or a college age son or a daughter and you've spoken some words that you know have pierced their hearts really deeply and you think, man, I have so screwed up. I've probably damaged them. Here is what I want to tell you this morning on Mother's Day. It doesn't matter what mistakes you have made. You can decide right now to change, to move in a new direction. And as a result of that, God can take something that is broken and he can make it beautiful again. That's what Rahab's life demonstrates. And I think God gave us her example so that we would see that God would take a broken person like Rahab and he would ultimately make her a direct descendant of the Savior of the world. That's what I believe Rahab's life demonstrates for us. In Ruth chapter 2, we meet a woman by the name of Naomi. Ruth is probably one of my favorite Old Testament books. I have about 32 of them, but that's probably one of my my favorite stories is the book of Ruth. If you're new in your faith and you've never done a study of the book of Ruth, we did that several years ago here at Northwest, you go back and listen to that, but read a book on Ruth, read through the book, understand it. 
In Ruth chapter one, we meet a woman named Naomi. Her life looks really great. It looks like some of your lives, moms, used to look. She had a nice Jewish wedding and and she married a guy named Elimelech. They had a quaint little wedding in a great wedding venue called Bethlehem. That's where they were from. That's where they lived. God blesses them not long after they're married. He blesses them with two sons, Malon and Kilion, and life was good. I wrote in my notes this week, she was living the Jewish dream, whatever that is, right? She married a great Jewish guy. They got married in the city of Bethlehem. They had two strong sons. Life was good. And then life turned very bad for Naomi. Her husband lost his job, and as a result of him losing his job, they, they moved away from their hometown for him to look for other work. They moved into a land that we know in biblical times as Moab. Moab was a very evil place. The people that were natural citizens in that area did not worship Jehovah God. Not long after they got there, her husband Elimelech died. And he left her alone in this foreign country with all of these pagan religions going on. He left her alone to raise two young men in that environment. And if that wasn't bad enough, those two young men decided to marry women that were obviously from that area since they weren't home with other believers of Jehovah God. They married two women who were not followers of Jehovah God. And if that wasn't bad enough, both of her sons died. So here she is, she has no husband, she has no son, she has no grandchildren, and she's living in a place that's far from home. You might ask, and maybe some of you have been to this point in your life, what is my reason for even existing? Everything that I thought defined me as a person is now gone. Her life was so bad, in fact, that she changed her name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter. She obviously had gotten to a certain point in her life when she was very bitter and angry about the events that God had orchestrated or had allowed to happen in her life. And I think Naomi's life represents so many women in our world today. Probably represents at least a number of you that are even in our auditorium this morning. There's women who have lost their husbands They've lost a child. Maybe even worse yet, as Jerry referred to before, they have desired to have children and they've never even had the ability to be able to have kids. And you know, there are no words to describe the pain. If you have been through those events in your life, there is no words to describe your pain. And I won't even begin to try to do that this morning. There's no Mother's Day flowers. There's no little card that's drawn by that little child just saying, I love you, mom. That never happens. Naomi went from living the Jewish dream to I'm going to change my name to bitter. Seemingly, Naomi had done everything right. And there's some of you in this room this morning, that's the way that you've lived life as well. You have in your minds, to the best of your ability, you've done everything the way that you thought God would want you to do it. You felt like you were honoring him with your life, and yet your life has turned out terribly wrong. It seems to her as if her life has no purpose, and I meet women like that very often. In fact, I got an email 
from a mom this week who's on the flip side of where Naomi was. I remember when I met this particular mom, she was about, I think her testimony would be about as low as she could have ever been in her life. She had gone from living the American dream to all of a sudden being in the middle of a nightmare. And it's at those times when moms cry out, God, where are you? Do you care? Do you have a purpose? Do you have a plan for my life? Fortunately for this particular mom, she's on the flip side of that. She's seen God's sovereign hand in her life. Naomi, by the way, was about to see that. She had a daughter-in-law by the name of Ruth, thus the namesake of the book of Ruth. And and Ruth was also now a widow, and she had no children. And Ruth asked her mother-in-law, Naomi, if she would take her along when she returned back to Bethlehem. She obviously became a believer. She became a follower of God. Most Bible scholars believe it is because she looked at Naomi's example. And while Naomi was indeed bitter to some degree, she changed her name to bitter, while she was frustrated, while she was very sad at the events of her life, obviously Ruth saw something in Naomi's life which pointed her to Jehovah God. And that was powerful. She came to the conclusion that God had a plan for both of their lives, and she wanted to be with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so Naomi and Ruth go back to Bethlehem, and it's there that Ruth meets and marries a man by the name of Boaz, not Bozo, Boaz. She marries a man by the name of Boaz, and Ruth and Boaz have a son named Obed, who would be the grandfather of King David. She changed her name, by the way, during this time, as you read further in the book of Ruth, she changes her name back to Naomi, which, get this, means delight. I want to encourage you this morning that if you're here and the events of your life have led you to a place, moms, women, where you never wanted to be, I want you to believe that God has a purpose, has a plan for your life, and he is working whatever he is doing for your good and for his glory. I believe if Naomi's life demonstrates nothing else for us, it demonstrates this, that great moms never give up, even when confronted with the disappointments of life. They never, ever, ever give up. And she's a perfect example of a mother who experienced unimaginable grief and yet remained faithful. I'm so glad that God has put women in my life, and I'm not going to name them this morning. A couple of them are here. I'm not going to name them this morning, but God has put women in my life that I have seen walk through this journey. And in my mind, they are modern-day Naomi's. They have been through the deepest tragedies and disappointments of life, and yet gotten to the point where they realize that great moms never give up when confronted with disappointments in life. We keep going and we continue to remain faithful to the one that we said we believed in when the skies were sunny and the days were good. That's what Naomi's life represents for us. Number three, I want to introduce you real quickly to a a woman named Hannah. Hannah was the mother of Samuel. Hannah's story starts out like some of yours starts out, some of you women. Hannah was not able to have children. And in fact, in in the days, in, in Bible times, in the ancient world, it was considered a curse of God if you could not have children. And to make things worse, this again is what I love about the Bible, is God gives us all the details, right? To make things worse, there's a woman named Peninnah who has kids, and she constantly torments Hannah. Now, that wouldn't be socially acceptable today, you know. She would be probably accused of a hate crime and those kind of things, but, but she's mocking Hannah, 
because she can't have kids and she has kids. And so Hannah pleads with God. In fact, scripture says that not only does she plead with God, like she goes to the temple and she begs God for a child. So much so that, that Eli, the priest, accuses her of being drunk when she's begging for God to do something in her life. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten to the point where you come to church and you start praying for something and goes, I think you're a little tipsy there. Like you've had a little bit too much to drink. Eli comes up to her and goes, woman, what are you doing? Like, what is going on? How much, what did you have to drink for breakfast this morning, right? She is obviously crying out to God. She is pleading with God. God, give me a son. All I want is a son. I just want a child. And if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. (laughs) I don't know whether she's thinking, well, I'm probably not going to get one anyway, so I'll just make some crazy vow to the Lord. But she makes this vow to the Lord and she says, God, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And God did give her a son. And when he was still a young boy, she took him to the temple to be raised by the priest and she visited him only once a year. And do you know that Samuel grew up to be one of the greatest prophets and leaders that we read about in all of the Bible. And she reminds us of this. She reminds us that our children really do belong to the Lord. They do. You think they belong to you, but they don't. Your children belong to the Lord. And not just when they leave home and you can't have your controlling arms around them anymore. They belong to the Lord right now. I I think that Hannah's life represents that. And I'm sure Hannah cherished every minute that she had with young Samuel. And yet she knew from the beginning whose he really was. Great moms realize that their children are a gift from God. That's what great moms do. Great moms, and by the way, this is true of great dads too, don't smother their kids. I'd like to take off, just pull off on an exit here, and I'd like to go down about two miles down there, and I'd love to talk about that very thing. There are some of us that we live that way as parents where we smother our kids, where we want to control every aspect of their life. We want them to do this and be this and be with those people. And we want them to look this way, dress this way. Don't get that tattoo. Don't get that earring. Don't listen to that music. Don't do that. We want to control everything in their life. Hannah realized this. He's not mine to control. He's God's. One of the greatest things that you can do for your kids is to realize that they're a gift from God. They do not belong to you. They belong to him. And by the way, I know what it's like to want to to want to hover and to want to control. Our youngest son, Justin, is in Chicago right now, and I'm asking him, so, you know, when you get there, bud, when you get to the airport and you you land in Chicago, you've never been there before, like, how are you going to get to the place where you're staying? I'm going to get on this shuttle, and, you know, I'm going to go do this. I'm like, I'm seeing Justin. If some of you know Justin, you know this is quite possible. Justin ends up in the wrong neighborhood taking pictures, you know, totally innocently, and all of a sudden, there's some gang fight that breaks out. And he's still taking pictures. He, think, he thinks, this is great. Boy, it's going to get me on the front of Time magazine or something like that. It's just the way that he thinks. And naturally, what I want to do is I want to hover over him. And I, want to, and I want to protect him from any harm that might come his way. And it's just a simple illustration, a reminder for me, that he does not belong to me. I had him in my home for a time, and we were with him 24-7 every day of the week. What we should have been doing was pouring biblical truth into his life, preparing him for the real world, because when he gets out there, I need to be reminded and yet take comfort in the fact that he does not belong to me. He belongs to God. I'm telling you, you parent that way, your kids will thank me that I told you to parent them that way. Right? Some of you know it's true. You've lived with it. You're still hovering over your adult children. Stop it. Don't do that. Let them live their lives. 
Recognize they don't belong to you. They belong to God. Great moms realize that their children are a gift from God. Just real quickly. Two ladies named Eunice and Lois, right? You say, where the heck are they found? Eunice and Lois, I've never even heard of them. That's why I chose them. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing his second letter to a young pastor named Timothy. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 3, 2 Timothy, he says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You say, wow, from a, from a child. Who were those people that... How did he know that as a child, right? Did he go to the temple? Was he with the priest? No, look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5 says, Paul writes, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it's in you as well. Why? Because of your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Now, if you're like me, when you read that, I go, what about dad, right? I'm glad you asked. Acts chapter 16 and verse 1, which is where we first meet young pastor Timothy. Verse 1 of, of chapter 16 says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, young Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So we know that Timothy is the product of a home with a believing mother and an unbelieving father. And there are some of you this morning, moms, you ought to be encouraged by this. Because there are a lot of churches that have led us to believe that if there's not a man in the home, and if a man, and by the way, I'm not minimizing fatherhood. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, all right? I'm not minimizing it at all. Incredibly important. But do not buy into the idea that if there is not a godly man that is living in the home with your son or with your daughter, that somehow it is impossible to teach them the truths of Scripture. You see, what Grandma Lois and Mom Eunice represent is the fact that, 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 that you can impart biblical truth into the lives of your kids, which will ultimately not only have impact on their lives, but potentially impact on thousands of other people. And so I believe the Apostle Paul in this text gives mothers and grandmothers a great honor. You have a calling that can become the long-remembered ground of faith, not just for your children, but for others as well. What these ladies represent is that great, great moms teach their children biblical truth. They teach their kids biblical truth. Oh, you can teach them how to cook in the kitchen. That's a great thing. You can teach them all kinds of things, how to do their makeup. You can teach them all kinds of great skill sets. But let me just tell you this. If you fail to teach them the truths of this book, I believe you have made the greatest mistake in motherhood or parenthood. Great moms teach their children biblical truth. They point their kids to truth. Lastly, real quickly, is a lady that um, some would probably say she shouldn't be used as an example of biblical motherhood. In fact, we don't even know her first name. We are introduced to her in Matthew chapter 20, and we're only introduced to her, by the way, as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Isn't that interesting? Like We don't know where her name is. Sally? Probably not. I don't think that was a, probably a biblical name at that point. We don't know what her name is, but we're introduced to her as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And, and just to give you context, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? 
Now, one of the, the, the problems in Scripture is that we don't necessarily get tone of voice, right? Somebody ever said to you, it's not what you said, it's your tone of voice. I get accused of that on a regular basis, but never fear. Everything I say is loud, all right? I don't mean anything by it. So we don't know whether, whether Jesus is saying, what do you want? Why are you touching me? We don't know if it's like that or he's going, what do you want? How can I help you? We don't really know what it is, but we know that she says to him in verse 21, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, you've read that passage of scripture before, many of you have, and Mrs. Zebedee has been criticized for probably 2,000 years for her audacious request for her sons to sit one on the left and one on the right, right? You've heard it that way, right? I mean, how could she ever do that? She's like that mom on Facebook. You know who she is, right? She's always talking about her kids, and you're going, your kids really aren't that great. You know, look at my kid's little whizzy button that he got in school. He passed his math test. You're going, it was addition. There was nothing difficult about the math. Well, look at him. He's so wonderful. He's so great. You know, unfriend her, drop from my feet, whatever it is you do. I thought you had to drop somebody. You could have to unfriend them so that you didn't have to see any of that garbage on your thing. But now I know you can just say, I just don't want to see their garbage anymore. There's some little button that you can push I was told about. She's that woman, right? That's what we've been told. She's that woman. You know, as I was doing some reading and some research this week, I I ran across one comment by a a pastor, actually, and, and I thought, that really makes more sense. I think it's possible that she has been criticized unfairly. I think maybe she just simply wanted her boys to be as close as they could be to Jesus. And she was willing to get down on her knees and beg him for that attention for her boys. I just want them to be close to Jesus. I believe that's a distinct possibility that that was the deepest desire of that mother's heart. She doesn't ask them, hey, when you get into your kingdom and you're divvying up all the mansions, can you make sure my sons get a big one? We've kind of lived in really meager houses here and it'd be really great. And if you could make sure that they... No, she just says, let them just sit as close as they can to you. That's really all I want for my kids. You know, moms have an idea of what they want for their kids. Dads do too. You want them to be good people. You want them to do well in school and and ultimately to get out of school, hopefully, and get a job and move away from home. Although if you're a hovering parent, maybe you don't want to do that. You just want them to stay home, but most of us want them to do that. You want them to marry somebody that's really nice. Your spouse doesn't even have to be that good looking. You just want them to be nice, right? And you want them to have lots of grandkids so that in your old age, there'll be people to draw you pictures and put them on the refrigerator and do all that stuff. That's really, some of us, that's about, as, that's about as good as it gets for us, right? If our kids just do that, then that's awesome. You know what Mrs. Zebedee represents for us? That great moms want nothing more than for their children to stay close to Jesus. If you're a really great mom this morning, that's what you really want. That's what you should really want. If you're a really great dad, that's what you ought to be most consumed with. That my son, that my daughter, that they have a heart for Jesus, that they love him above everything else, that's really what I want for my kids. Not that they become a doctor. If they become a doctor, that's really great. Not that they become a lawyer, not that they become well-known for this or well-known for that, or you know, they, they sign that big baseball contract or they get a college scholarship. All that stuff is really nice and great, but it is temporal, it's wood, hay, 
hay and stubble. It all burns up. The only thing, parents, that ultimately matters is if your kids have a heart for Jesus. And that's what Mrs. Zebedee represents. I think she represents that great moms want nothing more than for their kids to stay close to Jesus. I want you to know we got to wrap it up. And I, I look at my notes sometimes and I go, oh, man, this is going to be a short sermon. And people are going to love this, especially on Mother's Day. And then all of a sudden I go, what happened? Must have been Jerry talked too long at the beginning. That was probably what, what happened. Probably not. Here, here's what I want you to know. It's, it, it is impossible for you to be this kind of mom, for you to be this kind of dad, for you to live out these principles in your life if you're not a passionate follower of Jesus yourself. Right? You, you, you can't teach what you don't know. And if you teach something that you don't live, your kids will not listen to you. You understand that, right? They may listen to you for a moment when they're in your home, but they will leave your home and they will reject everything that you've said most of the time because you've been their best example that what you said to them was truth really doesn't work. You have to live what you say you believe. And, and, and a right understanding of the gospel, I believe, helps us to have a right understanding of parenthood. And one of the most encouraging truths that we get from the gospel is that God knows more about us than anybody will ever know. And in spite of that, he loves us the most. Isn't that cool? He knows more. He knows every single thought that you and I have had today. And in spite of that, he loves us the most. He forgives us no matter what we've done. He accepts us no matter how unacceptable we might believe that we are. His love isn't based on our merit. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what he did. Moms, I appreciate what you do. I'm going to tell you the greatest joy in your life is going to be if you apply principles like this in your parenting, if you point your kids to Jesus. That's ultimately what it means to be the best mom. You may be here this morning, and you may be the best cook in the world. I love moms that are great cooks. I married one. That's awesome. That's really great. You may be a great entrepreneur. You may be able to do a lot of awesome things. And you may be really hip with your kids and their friends and all of this kind of stuff going on. You may be really good looking. You're taking care of yourself, man. You're, you're exercising. You're in the best shape of your life. You're the best looking mom. Again, I'm married to one. Let me just tell you this. If you do all of that and you don't point your kids toward Jesus... You failed at the greatest opportunity that God can ever give a person, and that is to impart the gospel and biblical truth to the next generation. The good news is, 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 as we first talked about, if Rahab demonstrates nothing else, she demonstrates for us that it's possible to change. It's possible to change and to move in a new direction and to rewrite what might have been the end of your story.